0: Hello, and welcome to Charlatan Live, the only news show on the internet that stresses out my roommates. The date is September 30th, 2022. This week, we'll talk about the Ottawa Climate Strike, the Carleton University
1: Students Association's new stance, and what's new with CUSA. We'll also chat with our copy editor, Michaela Morgan, about her reporting on how architecture education is failing those with accessibility issues. My name
0: is Isaac Pandey,
1: and I'm Mark Cawley. Let's get newsy. You destroy the plant life, then you destroy the animals.
0: That's what Parliament Hill sounded like on Friday, when hundreds of people gathered to urge the federal government to address climate change. In 2019, thousands paraded through the streets of Ottawa to demand action from the federal government. Every year since then, hundreds of people gathered near Parliament on the last Friday of September. Protesters urged the Canadian government to help keep global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. This summer, the Carleton University Students Association voted to support reproductive rights and justice. CUSA voted to advocate for better reproductive health services for Carleton students and cut funding to anti-abortion clubs. Vice President Student Issues Ferris Riazuddin brought the policy to council. We wanted a motion that could stand the test of time. When he made the policy, Riazuddin said he consulted the university's Equity and Inclusive Communities Department, the Student Experience Office, the University Ombudsperson, and online Planned Parenthood resources. Jay-Z Walker is the Executive Director for Planned Parenthood Ottawa.
2: There is no neutrality when it comes to uh, human rights issues or reproductive
0: justice. Walker said the policy is a step towards helping students access reproductive health care, education, and
2: services. But I do think it's a an excellent starting place, and ultimately I think that we really believe that this movement can only be successful on the basis of partnerships. So I think having a really comprehensive outreach and partnership plan is gonna be like fundamental to the to the success
0: of this. At a monthly meeting in July, Council passed Riyazidine's policy. The association now officially supports rights and justice. Izzy Tate is a fourth year commerce student at Carlton and president of the Carlton Life Network.
3: Our biggest thing is that we are anti-abortion. We believe in the child's right from conception to life.
0: She said the group will not apply for CUSA funding.
3: I think applying for CUSA funds, it could complicate things a bit too, just in the sense that we're bound by CUSA rules, and if CUSA changes its abortion stance, then that can put the future of the club in jeopardy overall.
0: Riazadeen said the policy makes it clear anti-abortion groups will not be funded. So any club that isn't inclusive of the safer space policies automatically not given membership. And reproductive rights are more than just about abortion. At Planned Parenthood, Walker said she hoped the student union would also work to support parents in classrooms.
2: If anything is a little bit missing, I think reproductive justice as a framework is not just about abortion. Um, You know, I, I really think it is about... Um, the full scope of people's uh, reproductive lives uh, mm-hmm. when it comes to their bodies, their families, their communities.
0: Back at CUSA, Vice President Community Engagement Halle Ketchick said a committee of the association will review what reproductive health services are available to students. In more recent news, CUSA changed a conflict of interest policy, questioned their place in federated student groups, And announced plans to review a levy fee. Last month, the association's board members were banned from being responsible for the finances of any other Carlton related organization. At a monthly meeting on September 11th, council voted to allow board members to hold such positions as long as no conflict of interest arises. The motion allows the association's board chair, Gray Sims, to work as the vice president internal for the Carleton Academic Student Government. President Anastasia Lettieri also asked Council for a referendum for students to vote on the Millennium Village Charity Levy, a $6 fee that students pay every year to an international nonprofit organization. On Monday, Council approved a referendum to leave the Canadian Federation of Students. Lettieri has proposed CUSA join the Ontario Undergraduate Students Association instead, Both groups advocate for students and connect student organizations across Canada. Students will vote whether to leave the Federation on October 17th. Students will also vote to elect CUSA councillors on the same ballot.
1: joined now by Michaela Morgan, copy editor for The Charlatan, and she's the author of a recent article on accessibility issues in Canada, which you can read now in the features section on charlatan.ca. Michaela, thanks for joining us.
3: Yeah, thanks for having me.
1: Uh, You reported that accessibility advocates said construction companies and architects are ignoring the needs of people with disabilities. Why is this such a big issue?
3: So, like, disabled people know what they need you know the fact that they don't have they don't have a voice that's as elevated as it should be is an issue um they know what they need they know what they want and if we're not listening to them we can't um properly incorporate you know universal and accessible design into like our built environment and that's a major major problem and if we're not gonna take them seriously and we're not gonna give them a seat at that table then we're not doing our part, like architects and construction companies aren't doing their part to make the built environment accessible, which is a part of our legislature. It's a part of the law um, and it's not being listened to.
1: And you mentioned right there, the laws, it's not because of a lack of regulation. Um, Tell me a little bit about the rights and the laws that exist currently and why they aren't applicable or serving the purpose um, that they were put in place for.
3: Yeah, so, like, one of the major ones, obviously, is AOTA, which was implemented in, like, 2019. And basically, it said that it wanted to make Ontario, um, specifically, fully accessible to everybody um, by, like, 2025. And, you know, recently, a review um, of that by the former lieutenant governor of Ontario um, came out, and he basically said that um, we were nowhere near that goal you know, Ontario was nowhere near being fully accessible by 2025, and I think a lot of people can see that physically um, in the built environment, Uh, even if you just look in Ottawa. uh, They can see that it's not, we're not there yet. And so there's legislature that's come out since then that's calling for another 20 years of being fully accessible by like 2040. And it's like, okay, well you couldn't do it the first time, so why would we think that you can do it again? And, you know, the rights for disabled people is protected in the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Only, like, I mentioned this in the article, only, like, 24% of countries in the world have the rights for people with disabilities protected in, like, their constitution. And we, so they ha- we are protecting these rights, and we have these laws put in place, but it's slow moving, you know. In 2019, we called for full accessibility by 2025, and it's 2022, and we're, no, we're nowhere near that you know, like, so what have we been doing? Why aren't we being quicker in moving these things into the built environment? Why is it taking so long? And why are we calling for more time when um, we haven't done anything in the last couple years, you know?
1: In your article, you focus a lot on issues specifically at architecture schools. Um, What specifically is the issue right now with architecture education?
3: So what I found when I was speaking with architecture students such as Nora Allen, who I mentioned in my article, and even just students at Carleton in general, is that they're not being taught like an actual, like there's no section in their uh, curriculum about universal design. Um, it's They're being taught what, what Nora Allen says as tips and tricks um, for universal design. So that there needs to be a wheelchair accessible stall in bathrooms, or that there needs to be ramps um, beside stairs Uh, That kind of stuff. And it's all about physical disabilities. There's no real consideration for people who have um, even more like, I want to say invisible disabilities. So people who um, are blind, people who are deaf, you know, do we have the proper alarm systems put in place for them? Do we have the proper railings? Like they can't just drop off into nowhere, Um, that sort of stuff. And so they're not being taught that. And another thing that I know like experts have said Um, referencing Thea Curdy, who I uh, interview for this article, she mentions that um, architecture students are being taught that there's, first of all, design, and that there's universal design. And she mentions, which is really profound, she says, you know, if it's not universal design, isn't it discriminatory design? Why are they being taught that these are two separate things when, you know, universal design, as she puts it, should be the norm?
1: This is Thea Curdy. They're a senior accessibility specialist and vice president of Designable Environments.
2: If in your 20s, you're going through post-secondary education, and you're being taught beautiful architecture, and you're shown all of these examples that have been, are using discriminatory design and not inclusive, and you're not being challenged to think, then of course your default is going to be to produce the same.
3: So architecture schools aren't putting this at the forefront of their uh, curriculum. They're kind of treating it as an afterthought, and um, that that can't be the case.
1: And universal design is the idea of designing buildings to be serving all people.
3: Yeah. So universal design, like in a rough like Wikipedia Google search definition, is just the the idea of the built environment being accessible to everybody, despite, you know, um, ability, age, anything like that. Um, and it's supposed to be accessible to all peoples. And it's a new term. And I feel like it's kind of like a niche term in, in the architecture world, at least from what I've gathered when I've done, like was conducting my interviews for this piece, um, that it's kind of like a sen- almost like a sensitive topic. People don't, people kind of stray away from it because I guess maybe it's not the easiest form of, building. It's maybe it's not the cheapest form of building, but if it's going to serve the rights of everybody, you know, because universal design is not just for disabled people. It's for everyone, you know, because eventually we're all going to get to a point where we don't move as well as we used to. That comes with age and that comes, everyone's going to experience that. It's not just people who are born with disabilities. It's people who, like everybody who will eventually age into that, you know? And so universal design is for everyone and I don't think people understand that.
1: So what's the solution to all of this? We've outlined the issue and why it matters. How do you solve this moving forward?
3: That's like a, it's a very big question, you know? There's no like one way to solve a problem as big as this because it's a its a huge problem and it, it you know, envelops so many people around the world. Like so much of the Canadian population identifies as having... I believe um, Mahadeo Sakai, one of the sources in this um, piece, said that for, I think, for almost every individual who identifies as a Black Indigenous person of color or BIPOC, um, there is someone who identifies as having a disability. So it's a lot of people when you think about it.
1: This is Mahadeo Sakai. They're the research head and chief accessibility officer for the Canadian National Institute for the Blind.
2: Accessibility continues to be seen by everybody, up and down, as something that isn't relevant to me. 22.3% of people in Canada live with a disability. 22.3% Person for person, that's roughly the same number of people in this country who identify as not being white. Right? So, so for every person who identifies as black, indigenous, and people of color, there's somebody in the country who also identifies as a disability. Right? That's a lot of people. That, that 22.3% is two people in every nine. That's not a small number. And yet we treat, we treat disability as, as something that is, is there for the precious few. The few who can't do it our way.
3: And so the solution, I think, from what experts and advocates have been saying, or at least the ones that I've spoken to have been saying is giving disabled people a spot at the table, you know, letting people, letting people into architecture programs, making it, removing barriers for disabled people to get into these programs. You know, why aren't there more disabled architects? What's going on there? They, like I said before, they know what they need, they know what's best for them and if we're not listening to them there's going to be no solution to this problem we need to remove the barriers that allow them to get into these positions um raise their voices up and hear them and listen to them and um not only just listen to them but actively implement what they're telling us what they're telling architects what they're telling construction companies what they're telling you know law and legislature um what needs to happen, and actually actively moving to do that.
1: Michaela, thanks for joining us.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: This episode featured original reporting by Mark Ramsey, Nicole Dainty, Michaela Morgan, James Gray, and was edited by Isabel Harder. Production by Mark Colley and Isaac Punday.
0: To learn more about these stories, visit charlatan.ca. That's charlata N.ca. We would like to acknowledge that we are living, working, and operating on the traditional and unceded territory of of the Algonquin Nation. As settlers on this land, we are committed to prioritizing Indigenous voices and learning how we can support the ongoing movement towards decolonization and anti-racism. Thanks for joining us for the Charlton Live Radio Show. I've been your host, Isaac Panne.
1: And I'm Mark Colley. We'll catch you next week.
0: Until then, touch grass.
1: This episode featured Atmospheric by Penguin Music and a news transition by Mixkit. You're listening to Catch It by Comma Media.